Thanks for joining us here at Temple Baptist Church in Centralia, Illinois, where we are a community of people who are not perfect and don't pretend to be. If you would like to see other resources or learn more about our ministry, check out www.tbccentralia.com. Our hope and prayer is that through the following message, you are encouraged, blessed, and inspired to meet the Lord in a powerful way. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, and, and I'm going to introduce you to another encounter. So if you uh, have been with us the last five weeks, you'll know that the first week that we encountered Jesus as a 12-year-old in the temple. And, and I think as you, you think about that and you look on that, those who have uh, been in the church, especially at that age, age 12, there's something about that where uh, I think each of us have had that uh, pull on God's call for our life. And we saw Jesus uh, respond to that call. And then the next week, uh, we saw Jesus as he was just starting his ministry and where he encountered John the Baptist in a river. And he was baptized. And then uh, week three, not only did we have uh, Jesus uh, encountered in the river, but we also saw that Jesus encountered Peter in the middle of one of uh, the worst storms that these group of fishermen had. And, and Peter got out of the boat and walked by faith on the water. And then last week, uh, we heard about Mary and how that Mary Magdalene, a broken woman, a woman who uh, had encountered Jesus earlier in her life and didn't let him go. And she was the first there at the tomb, and uh, she remained when everyone else had gone home. And she was the first to see our risen Lord. Amen? Well, today, after Jesus uh, uh, encountered Mary at the tomb, he came across a couple of guys on their way to Emmaus. So if you would, join with me as I read in verse 13. And it says this, that that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And so you, you, you've got the picture that, that Jesus' followers were in a bit of a tizzy because if, if you read just a few verses earlier in verses 1 through 12, they explain another version of Mary encountering not only Jesus but the angels and how that they themselves went and checked out what was going on. I mean, could you imagine what the tomb was like the day that Jesus had arisen? The, the, the Roman leadership must have been close by wondering who had done this. Then there was the Jewish leadership who was um, wishing that there was a body still in that tomb. And then there were his followers who were looking in. And, and I love how the Bible tells us that they stooped down to look in. And, and they, they, needed to, they wanted to make sure that his body wasn't still there. That it wasn't on the other side of the tomb. That he was really gone. Now at this point they still don't understand what's happened. 
And, and I think that, you know, as a Christian in the year 2019, when we read the Bible, we have the complete work of God, it's easy for us to look at them like, come on, guys, he told you he was going to die and then ra- be raised again three days later. It's easy for us to look at them like that and say, what, are, you know, what do you guys not understand? But the reality is this. That sometimes God is working in our life right here in June of 2019 and we miss him. And so it's easy to be critical, but you know what? It's easy to miss him. And what the Bible tells us is that they were on their way to Emmaus. And Emmaus was a seven-mile trip. They didn't have a car. They didn't have a chariot. They didn't have a donkey. They didn't have horses. They were walking. And so this trip probably took them about three hours. And as they're walking along, and I, and I believe that this must have happened early in, um, that Jesus approached them. And, and he becomes a part of their conversation. He becomes a part of their journey on their way to Emmaus. Continue reading with me. In verse 17 it said, And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Now, uh, many of us have been meeting in life groups, and one of the things that, that stood out is that Jesus, after his resurrection, when he would encounter people, is he would ask them questions. Now, um, I love that concept of asking questions because it takes us to a different place. Matter of fact, a few years ago, I was reading a book by uh, one of uh, uh, my pastor uh, virtual mentors, uh, John Maxwell. And John Maxwell, he wrote a book. And he said that good leaders ask great questions. Now, just about that time that I was reading that book, um, I was traveling down to uh, Florida with my wife. I was going to speak at a leadership conference. And when we got down there, um, they didn't have regular hotels, so we had to book ourselves at a resort. Now, you know that's going to be good no matter how you shake it. But I figured the price was so low that we weren't going to get a really good room. But you know what? We were at a resort, so it was going to be okay. And, and as I parked the truck out front and I walked inside to check ourselves in, the, the man standing there behind the desk, uh, he welcomed me, and then he asked me a question. He goes, would you like a kitchen or would you like a view? Now, I knew what he meant. I could either have a room that looked at the street with a little uh, microwave and maybe a stove and a refrigerator, or I could have a view. I had my wife out there in the truck, and I knew which one she would have picked. And so I said, young man, I said, I'll take the view. Got you taken care of. And then I said, you know what? I said, are you the owner of this resort? He said, no, I just work here. I said, impossible. You've got to at least be the manager. He said, no, I'm just an employee. I get paid by the hour. He goes, why do you ask that? I said, well, I've been reading a book. And it said, good leaders ask great questions. And i got to tell you, that, my friend, was a great question that you asked me. And so he went on to share with me that, nope, he, he didn't feel like he was a leader. But as we look in Luke, we see that Jesus was asking questions. 
You'll find out that if you want to have conversations with your neighbors, you want to have conversations with your relatives, you want to have conversation with your friends, maybe instead of pointing our fingers at them and telling them stuff, maybe, just maybe, we could follow Jesus' example and ask questions. I think you'll find out that you'll get further along in the conversation. In verse 18, then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, I know it doesn't say this, but I'll bet you if we went back to the Greek, it would probably translate, are you kidding me? But that's not what he said. He said, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to him, what things? Another great question. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. Oh, this is the uproar that's going around the, the followers of Jesus. The people who had been affected. I mean, could you imagine all those who had been healed by Jesus, how it affected them when they saw that that he was crucified? Could you imagine those that had uh, seen Jesus do some miracles, whether it was in the temple or at their home or at somebody else's? And then there he was on the cross, subject to the Romans, crucified. They probably hung around and saw his body taken off of that cross. They probably saw some of his closest friends wrap him up. But here's what Jesus said. And he said to them, O foolish ones, in verse 25, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, and when we use the word Christ here, the Messiah, the very one who the, the Jewish people since Abraham had been looking for, the very one should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, interpret, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I don't know if you remember, but last week I shared with you that this isn't just one book. This is a collection of 66 books. And in these 66 books, we know that 40 different authors helped write it. And we know that these 40 different authors spanned a period of time of 1,500 years. And not only that, but we know that it was written in three different languages on three different continents. But my friends, I'm here to tell you that this book, this 66 uh, books collected here in this one binding by 40 different authors over 1,500 years on three different continents and three different languages, I'm here to tell you that it has one message. 
I'm here to tell you that it has one theme. I'm here to tell you that it has one story. And if you don't get anything else, if you read any of these 66 books, get the one story. Let me share with you that here's what I believe Jesus did. I believe Jesus took them back to Genesis. And I believe that if you'll, you'll turn with me in Genesis chapter 3, you'll see that not only does Genesis talk about the creation of the world, not only do we see that Genesis refers to a time when God set aside a man by the name of Abraham. Not only does he lay out with us the creation of the world as we know it, but here in the Garden of Eden, you know the story about Adam and how that Adam had a wife named Eve. And now up to this point, I don't know if you understand this, but she didn't have a name at that point. And so Adam had this woman in his life, and this woman encountered the enemy. Now, church, you've heard me say this a dozen times, and I'm going to say it a hundred more. The enemy is not a person in this church. The enemy is not a person in our community. The enemy is not when your car won't start. The enemy is not when you're having a bad day and you don't feel good. The enemy is none other than Satan. This is the enemy. And the first woman that God created, who would soon be named Eve, she encountered Satan. And we know that she took of the fruit. And then she handed it to Adam. Now, men, it's easy for us to point the finger and say, look, she's responsible for this. Oh, it's easy to do that. But you know what? Adam was there the whole time. He was standing right beside her when the enemy walked up. He was standing right beside her when the conversation started happening. He was standing right beside her when the enemy began to question God's word and ultimately changed God's word. And he was right beside her and he took a bite of the fruit. And then they had an encounter with God. And in that encounter, God told the man he would work the rest of his days. And he told the woman that she would have pain in childbirth because of what happened there. But listen to me. Here's what he said to the enemy. And here's where we see the gospel in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts and on the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And here we are that the Messiah, the one promised here in Genesis, has just bruised the enemy's head. At, literally walking on top of that as he walked out of that tomb, a risen Savior. But see, we don't have to just stop in Genesis. Turn with me over to Exodus. And if you turn to chapter 12, you'll see this, that in the first Passover, we have a crystal clear glimpse of what the gospel was all about. And I'm going to read to you a few verses in verse three. It says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. 
And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. In verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And what you see happening here is that Jesus, the Lamb of God, in verse 3, represented the lamb that would be killed for each of these families that were still in Egypt. And then in verse 5, it describes a lamb without blemish. And that's what happened when Jesus walked on this earth. He was the lamb without blemish. He was a man without sin. And here's what's interesting. In verse 6, it talks about how that in, in the whole assembly, this is where they would kill the lambs, the goats. And it's just that prophecy that happened three days earlier where the Lamb of God, without blemish, was killed in the assembly. Well, turn over with me, not only in Exodus, but let's move on to the book of Leviticus. And you know, when we see the book of Leviticus, um, what you don't realize is this is a verbatim Word of God book. Now, many of the other books are men who were inspired by God, but look at the first verse here. It says, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings in... See, this is the entire book is God telling Moses exactly how the law will work. And so as we look at the book of Leviticus in the first chapter, let me read verses 3 through 5. It says, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. <coughs> he shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of the meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and that shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Boy, aren't you glad that we don't live in those days? Where instead of having the opportunity at the end of the service to come up here to this altar, and nobody knows why you're coming up here. They don't know if you're coming to pray about uh, someone in your life. They're not, they don't know if you're coming to pray about something in your life. They don't know why you're up here. But here's what happened. You know, could you imagine being a part of one of the tribes where you weren't up close and you had a you've got your sacrifice and you're walking it and you're walking past everybody's tent that knows you and they know that the reason why you're taking this is because there is sin in your family and not only that but when you get up there you have to put your hands on the head of this animal and you have to call out those sins oh do i have an amen that we don't have to do that anymore and, and you, you call out those sins, and then watch this. In verse 6, And then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood, and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And here's what, they took that, that animal that they brought forward, the male without blemish, and then they killed it with their own hands. Folks, I know you weren't alive 2,000 years ago, but it makes no difference. You see, it was our hands that killed the Lamb of God. Make no mistake about it. It was because of our sin that Jesus Christ, through no fault of his own, 
for no reason in this world except that he did something that we couldn't do for ourselves. It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't the Jewish leaders. Folks, step into a room that has a mirror. Look in there and you'll see who's responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. Oh, but you know what? Jesus doesn't hold that against us. Because he knew that the price for us to pay for our own sins was too much. And he did it for us. But you know, it's not just in Leviticus. Uh, Jump over to chapter 17 in Leviticus and, and look at this in verse 11. And here's why it was so important. Because I don't know if you've ever read the book of Leviticus, but there's a lot of different types of offerings. So a burnt offering was a sin offering. This was where you were going to get an atonement for the sins that you had committed. But there were other types of offerings. And here's what's important here is that all of those other types of offerings didn't require the blood. In verse 11 it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for, on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Now, if you continue to read, it talks about how that we aren't to drink of the blood. And, and you watch, the enemy takes what God says and he distorts it. And you will find that when you get in, you look and examine what occultic practices are, one of them is to drink the blood. See, we don't have to do that because Jesus has already done that. They didn't have to do this 2,000 years before Jesus because when they were sacrificing that animal, the faith that they believed that this animal was representing the coming Messiah and would pay for their sins. Well, it's not just in Leviticus. Turn over to the book of Numbers. And if you look at the book of Numbers, let me tell you, my friends, it is much more, much more than a genealogy. The book of Numbers is a record of the consequences of our faithfulness and our unfaithfulness. If you look in Numbers chapter 20, you'll see an encounter that I'm, I refer to. And I'll start reading verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Isn't it funny how that when things get tough, um, we go after the leader? But that's exactly what the children of Israel did. They assembled against Moses and Aaron. And, and, and what that means is they wanted to kill him. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, What or would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord? Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of the meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water, so you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give them drink to them and their cattle. And Moses took the staff before them and did as the Lord commanded. See, when Moses was faithful, God delivered. Well, if you follow along in Leviticus, they come to another point. They don't have water. 
And the people murmur and they complain. And this time, the Lord tells them to do it again. And instead of taking and going and speaking to the rock, Moses is in anger. He struck it. And there was a consequence for Moses' unfaithfulness. And that was that he would not enter into the promised land. And so the last days of his life, he's up on a peak and he can see the promised land, but he was not allowed to enter. You know, and the truth is that there are consequences when we are faithful to God, and God is always faithful to deliver those, but there are consequences when we are unfaithful. And when we do that, God is faithful. See, if you follow the history of the children of Israel, they had so many promises made to them. Matter of fact, if we look in Deuteronomy, this is a book of promises. The book of Deuteronomy is probably the best comparison to the John's Gospel. Because it shows the redeeming work. And as we go through the book of Deuteronomy, the message that we see over and over again is that repentance and grace saturates the Old Testament. You know, it wasn't just the New Testament. If you turn to Deuteronomy 4.30, let me read read that verse to you. 4.30 says this, When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey His voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So even when the children of Israel disobeyed, even when the children of Israel ran from the Lord, it tells us that he would be faithful if they would call. Turn over to chapter 6. And do you recall the story where the young rich ruler approached Jesus and asked, what must he do? What's the the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus literally quoted Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Church, uh, when we think about our mission, we want to love God just like this. This this was the requirement when God gave the law to Moses. This is the requirement today in 2019. If we want to transform Centralia with the name of Jesus, we'll only do it if we're able to love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, and soul. But you know, it's a lot easier to say that than to actually do it. And if if you think I'm joking, turn over to Leviticus, uh, back over to Leviticus in in, uh, the 19th chapter, and then you'll see the second verse that Jesus was quoting. Leviticus 19 and verse 18, it says this. You shall not take revengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You know, so many times we see Jesus and we think that Jesus brought something new. Jesus did not change one line of the Old Testament. He came to fulfill the Old Testament. And every time that he spoke, he spoke the words of the prophets. There wasn't anything new. And a lot of, maybe we see this New Testament, the name of it, and we think that there was something different. My friends, there is nothing. This is 66 books, one message. Don't ever forget that. And then as we look in Deuteronomy, we see that Moses and Jesus had a stark comparison of their lives. Both of them were born with a death sentence put upon them. Do you find it unique that both of them found safety in the land called Egypt? Are you curious to know that when both of them left Egypt and they started to minister to their people, they were rejected by their people? 
And would it surprise you to know that both of them had to die before their people could enter the promised land? The children of Israel had to wait for Moses to pass away because of his disobedience. And we had to wait for Jesus to die on the cross and to be risen before those that were in paradise at that time were taken to heaven. Deuteronomy 21, 22 and verse 23 says this, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. Folks, the very Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life was hung on a tree. And there was a point that he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer to that question is, God forsook him because of the sin, because of my sin, because of your sin that was put upon him. You know, it's not just in Deuteronomy. We can go to Joshua and you'll see that the name Jesus, the Greek word for it is Yeshua or Yahashua. And if you look at Joshua, when it's pronounced, it means it's pronounced Yeshua. And the name Joshua means salvation. Joshua was a prototype of Jesus Christ. If you follow his life, he was faithful. He was faithful when he was called to be one of the spies that went into the promised land. And he came back and said, we got this. Our God can deliver us. But ten men disagreed with him. And so they went with the ten. If you turn over to the book of Judges, you're going to see... Um, read through the book of Judges and you're going to see the culture that we live in today in 2019. You'll see a people who are far from God. Now many of you know what it's like to uh, live in a time in our country when our country was close to God. Anybody remember what the days after 9-11 were like? The churches were filled. Why? We were calling out to God. People who would ignore God and wouldn't think twice about what they're going to be doing on Sunday when that happened... They found themselves in the house of God. But three weeks later, that changed. And the message you see throughout the book of Judges is that as humans, we are prone to sin. But because of that sin, we can expect to face judgment. But there's a God in heaven who hears the cries of help. And make no mistake about it, it wasn't Gideon who delivered, it was God. It wasn't any of the other judges, it wasn't Samson, it was the power of God on his life. Folks, if you want to get delivered from whatever circumstances that you put yourself in, because that was the circumstances the children of Israel put themselves in. They had forsaken God, they had gone to worshiping other idols. But God was faithful. He heard their cries. And in the book of Ruth, we see that while in the midst of a famine, and I believe today that we are in the midst of a spiritual famine, and in just as she encountered Boaz that became the kinsman redeemer for her, folks, we have a kinsman redeemer. His name is Jesus. See, I know that it took them three hours to, to get to the Emmaus because it probably took Jesus three hours to speak all through I could take you through every book. For the sake of time and for the sake of whatever you have in your crockpots at home, I won't do that to you this morning. 
But know that these 66 books all contain the gospel. That's the one message. We'll turn back over to Luke 24. Let me read in verse 28. It says, So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, when he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. You know, I don't know about you, but there's been so many times in my life where I've encountered Jesus again when something reminded me of a time in my past. I remember when I was in Bible college and I'm driving uh, home one night and a car pulled out in front of me. I can't explain how, as a young guy that was speeding, I didn't crash into that car. I can only tell you that I believe that there was an angel in the car that night that grabbed the wheel And so there are other times when I'm driving down the road, and, and it's not a car that's coming, but it's something that's happening in, in the life of somebody in our family, the life of somebody in this church. And, and, and just as clearly then, I see the angel taking the wheel. I don't know what that's like for you, but that's what happened. See, it was last week we shared with you when Jesus said, Mary. She recognized. He'd been talking to her, but when he said Mary, when he called her name, he, they, she recognized, oh, teacher. And these men, it was when Jesus broke the bread and he prayed over it that they recognized who he was. Folks, I don't know what or where you've encountered the Jesus that I'm speaking of, but I'm here to tell you that it's not a one-time thing. God has you on this earth for a purpose. He has a calling on your life. But I want to share with you, if you've never had an encounter with Jesus, don't leave here today without doing that. And if you have had an encounter with Jesus and you find yourself at a point where it's difficult to see what is going on or to see him working or to to see his faithfulness in these dire circumstances that you find yourself in, let me share with you what the brother of Jesus, James, said in the fourth chapter. In verse 3, it says this, You ask and do not receive because you are asked wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Folks, there are so many people who have called out to the Lord in prayer and God didn't answer them and so they walk away from God. And they say, well, if he won't answer my prayers, that's not the God I want. I'm here to tell you one day when they face him in judgment, when they bow on their knee and they cry out and confess that he is Lord, they won't think so lightly of that prayer. 
And the reality is that those prayers are prayed to be consumed upon our own selves. In verse 4, James answers them very sternly. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The church is filled with a lot of people who want to be friends with the world, and you don't realize that you put yourself at enmity with God. You want to come to church and you expect that God does something miraculous in your life, and yet the only time that you even think about him is maybe the hour and a half that you're here. I'm here to tell you that the reason why we can't see God working in our lives is because we have become friends with the enemy. Folks, this is not an easy answer. This isn't an easy solution. Verse 5, or do you suppose it's no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Do you not understand that God desires such a strong, God desires to show himself strong in your life, but because of the sin that we live out on a daily basis, the, the muck and the mire that we wallow in, we rob God of being able to bear witness with our spirit. We rob God with, because what it says is when he hears our prayers, our prayers are answered. But the problem is he can't hear it because we become friends with the world. But my friends, that is not the desire of God. His desire is to be there with you, to be there for you. And just as Carrie saying earlier, you are not alone. And if you are, it's because you choose to be. It's because you've chosen the friendship of this world. In verse 6 it says, But he gives grace, therefore God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The reason why you don't see God work, you don't see the, your eyes open like these men on the road to Emmaus, is because of pride. And my friends, if I take you back to Genesis chapter 3, it was pride that caused Satan to rise up against his creator. And folks, it's pride that's going to keep us from seeing God work in our lives on a daily basis. So what is the answer if you're not seeing God work in your life? Let me submit to you in verse 7 and 8. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Folks, that is one action. By draw nigh to God, you are resisting the devil. By draw nigh to God, you are resisting the friendship of this world. By draw nigh to God, you have taken the enemy and put him in his place. And when you draw nigh to God, the enemy doesn't want to be there with you. Tony and Kara, if you'll come up and begin getting ready for the invitation. I'll leave you with this last verse, and it says in verse 10 of James chapter 4. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. God made the promise to the children of Israel, and he said that there are consequences when you are faithful, and those consequences were blessings. And there are consequences when you are unfaithful, and those consequences are oppression. The same holds true for us today. If we are going to allow pride, and make no mistake about it, it's pride that's going to keep you from responding to the tugging on your heart that the Holy Spirit is doing right now. It's pride that's going to keep you from saying soft words to somebody who has hurt you. 
It's pride that's going to keep you from saying, I forgive you and truly do that in your heart. And my friends, if you embrace that pride, you have just drawn nine to the enemy. But if you'll humble yourselves, God is faithful. Stand with me. I want you to watch these words that come up on the screen. Make them the prayer of your heart. The altar is open. Don't let today go by. Our God is faithful. As a church, it's our honor to play a small part in all that God is doing in and through your life, and we would love to continue with you on that journey. To find out what your next steps could be in your relationship with Christ, simply go to www.tbccentralia.com forward slash next. You see, here at TBCC, it's our mission to lead people to become fully devoted followers of Christ who walk by faith and not by sight.